We're in Second Peter, so I, I want to finish what we started last week, and uh, I don't have a board, as Joel told me, but that's all right. I've given you a handout here that I draw your attention to. Uh, and this is what I want to review a little bit because uh, a couple of you weren't here last week. So let me just review. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 is one of the most important verses in the Bible on the inspiration of God's Word. Second Timothy 3.16, which we studied a little bit last week, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. That's the, that's the water for inspiration. What is inspired? All Scripture. 2 Peter 1.21, in its context, explains to us how God did it. Human authors, using their own vocabulary, own syntax, own historical background, write the Scriptures. And the text says the Holy Spirit guides, carries them along. There are various ways that Greek word Pharaoh is translated. I like to translate it, superintends the writing of Scripture. So you have both a, you have both the human author and the divine superintendents of what they are writing. So that when the ink on that parchment dries in the original autograph, that's the word of God. That's how the Bible presents itself. Now that last sentence, you understand what I'm saying? That's how the Bible presents itself. It presents itself as an inspired work. Theopanoustos, God breathed. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. And then 2 Peter 1.21 explains to us, as Peter's in the context, here's what I teach, here's what I represent. I saw this on the mount, I saw the Savior on the mount of transfiguration, and it's consistent with everything the prophets told us about him, and the prophets never wrote on their own, creating myths and legends. They were carried along, moved along, superintended by the Holy Spirit, so that the result is the Word of God. I'm, I'm par- but that's essentially what he's arguing. And as I said last week, I say this to my students all the time, I say this to the people in my church. This is the claim the Bible makes for itself. Test that claim. Just test the claim. And that's kind of what we were talking about a little earlier with your question about how do I look at the age of of some of these fossilized men and humans that are found, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the Bible explains a way to look at it. Test it. Is there a scientific, testable way to say that what the Bible is saying is true? The Bible has 357 prophecies about the coming Messiah in his first advent. Were all 357 of those fulfilled? Yes, with incredible precision. So all I'm saying to you is here's the claim the Scripture is making. So you test the claim. Test what it says. And is there a way in which, I mean, that's what truth, truth, I always tell my students, that truth is always stated in propositions. I'm probably getting a little beyond your level of interest, but that's an important point of of what we, we, how we argue anything. A, A truth Anything that's true is a proposition. You're making a claim about reality. Fred Scott, true or false? Well, no. Fred Scott, true or false? I haven't said anything. It's not a proposition. Fred Scott. Now, if I had said Fred Scott is alive, that's a proposition. Can you test it? 
Well, we get a stethoscope out. Here's heart beating. We, we watch him breathing. Yes, he's alive. It's been verified by the evidence. Joel has a blue um, shirt. I think it's a blue shirt. Blue shirt on. That's a proposition. How do you test it? Well, I go over and look, and according to the way my eye understands blue, that's blue. First um, John chapter 4, two times in First John 4, it says, God is love. That's a proposition. That's a truth claim statement. How do you go and, and try to prove that? Well, you look at all the other claims about God. God so loved the world he sent. I mean, that's, that's part of what I'm saying. So in, in terms of what the scripture is claiming about itself, you test that claim like you test any other claim. Is there enough evidence for you to shake your head and say, yeah, that's true. In all probability, all the evidence points to that being true. It's like making all squirrels have bushy tails. Well, that doesn't mean you've looked at the hundreds of millions of squirrels on planet Earth and checked them all. Here's one million four hundred. There's another one. Here's one million. You know, no, it's just a nature of squirrelness is a bushy tail. And she reads. I'm being really silly here, but this is how the Bible presents the truths of our faith. So I want to ask one more question. Revelation, God has chosen to reveal himself. The Bible says God reveals himself in four ways. In his creation, in conscience, in his moral law, and in Jesus. There are the four ways in which God reveals himself. I think we've talked about this before, but maybe just to review it again. In creation, in conscience, and in his moral law. That's the argument of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And then the rest of the New Testament, I always like to point to the first couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days, God has revealed himself through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is a revelation of who God is. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, some of those, right, I, I saw that. I think Fred was the author of that. Yeah. <laughs> now, here's the, here's the last question I want to ask before we get back to Second Peter. The third term I wrote on the board, I'm pretty sure I wrote it on the board, I hope I wrote it on the board last week, was illumination. Yes. Did I write that on the board? Okay, good. So we didn't get to talk about that because we ran out of time. And so what I want to do, and that's the little sheet that I decided, I'm really, really thankful I decided to run this off because, you know, I wasn't sure whether we'd have a board. And so I thought, well, just to be careful with what I want to get across, I'm going to run this. It's a, it's a PowerPoint slide I have on Sunday, so I'm really thankful I did. So what I would like, I'd invite you to do, it looks like most of you have a Bible, is turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with me. And I, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read the whole passage. All right? I'm going to take my time. But then when we're done reading this, I want to go back to the, 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 the slide the copy I gave you. Okay? Now, here's Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to start at verse 6. He's writing, he's writing to, I mean, you know this, but I'll remind you. Corinth is a Greek city. It's one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire. 
it's profitable, it's cosmopolitan, it's, it's one of the great worship centers of, of the ancient world in terms of a number of the Greco-Roman gods and goddesses and so on. And in Corinth, they were typical Greeks. They loved the word Sophia, which I'm sure you've heard of that. That means wisdom. That was the Greek word for wisdom. Because the Greeks invented philosophia. What's that in English? Philosophy. The love of wisdom. So what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16 is he says, there is an alternative way of looking at wisdom. It's wisdom sourced in God. Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart, some translations have, we speak a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Then this majestic quote from the Old Testament, as it is written, what I have seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. All right, so the first part of his argument in this passage is the wisdom we teach is not a wisdom sourced in Aristotle and Plato and Socrates or Aristophanes or any other Greek thinkers of the ancient world, nor is it centered in political power. The rulers of this age, where is it sourced? It's sourced in God. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us. So that is a profound sentence. Can we know this wisdom? If this wisdom is sourced in God, and no human philosopher like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and all these other guys, that's not the wisdom I'm talking about. And it's not the wisdom that political power sourced in the rulers of age. Can we know this wisdom? Answer, yes. Now you have to give me a second because I'm reading it on my phone and my phone just went out, so I've got to bring it up again. These things God has revealed to us, how? Through, by means of the Spirit. Now, verse, the rest of this verse, verse 10, all through verse 16, is extremely important. That's what's reflected in this little sheet. For who knows, for the Spirit searches even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God. And this is a purpose clause that's very clear in the original, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those which are spiritual. Now verse 14, the natural person. Jude verse 9 tells us that's the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because he's spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, that's the person who has the Holy Spirit, judges all things, meaning evaluates all things, discerns all things, but he's judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord is to instruct him. Well, that's a quote from a psalm. Nobody. The Lord didn't ask me what kind of day he wanted to create today. He didn't say, Jim, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? 
What kind of day should I create? God doesn't seek my counsel, and I'm rather certain he doesn't seek yours. But then Paul makes this ridiculous, almost audacious claim, but we have the mind of Christ. God doesn't seek our counsel, but we have the mind of Christ. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. So what Paul does here, and I refer now to this, the sheet, Paul takes, this is, so, this is so neat when you really study this, dig into this. Paul takes Aristotle's system of logical argumentation, the deductive logic, and he puts it in this argument. It's a syllogism. Now that may, if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But it's just, when you make an argument like this, you make a, a major premise, major truth claim statement, a minor premise, and then you reach a conclusion. These are both true. Therefore, this is true. So, major premise is the Holy Spirit of God knows and searches out and understands the deep things of God. That's what he claims. And then he says, we don't receive the spirit of this age. We receive the spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. When do we receive the Holy Spirit? Romans 8, 9, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us when we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. So because the Holy Spirit knows and searches the deep things of God, and because we have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit enables us to know God, to know his wisdom, to know his truth. Now, I don't know about you, you probably don't get excited about biblical truth, but this is really, really exciting. Because not only has God revealed himself to us, not only has he re revealed himself verbally in a book called the Bible that is inspired, he also gives us his Holy Spirit, which enables us to understand and to welcome that truth. If you look at verse 14, he says, but the natural man does not receive this wisdom. That word receive is really, really important. The Greek word there is dekamai. What does that mean? If you were to, what does that say? But the natural man doesn't welcome, doesn't embrace the things of the Spirit. You see, it doesn't say he doesn't intellectually understand it intellectually. It's that he doesn't accept it. He doesn't welcome it. You understand the difference? You can intellectually know something, but you can refuse to embrace it as true. There are many, 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 many millions, probably billions ultimately, but millions of people out there that say, I understand something. The Bible is making the claim that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins. That's intellectually to understand it. That's the claim it's making. But I don't believe that. I don't welcome that. I don't embrace that. They haven't decamited. it. And what, what does this passage teach us? That the Holy Spirit enables you to welcome and embrace the truth. Not only understand intellectually, but embrace it. Now again, I, I, I want you to really and I really mean this, I really want you to get your arms around this doctrine of illumination. That God's not only revealed himself in a verbally inspired book, he also enables us to illuminate his revelation, to intellectually understand it, 
and to willingly embrace it. You know, it's almost like, and I really think this is the right way, God has made it so easy for us. I mean, he really has. That's what grace is. He has made it so easy. But it requires that initial act of the will. I like to put it, I give up, Lord. I am a sinner. And I cannot, I cannot make this right. I understand what Jesus did for me. I embrace it. I welcome it. I accept it. I appropriate it. And then you begin that life of sanctifying grace. And it's just, to me, it's, this is so exciting to understand what God is doing. So every time you pick up the Word of God, where you're reading it during our Bible study or something, the one thing you can be certain of, because that's what this is teaching us, that the Holy Spirit not only helps you to understand this intellectually, but helps you to welcome it and embrace it so that it changes you. And that is, that is central. It's central to, I believe anyway, central to truly understanding the doctrine of sanctification. It is God's word that transforms us and changes us. And this explains how it does that. It's the Holy Spirit using his inspired work. He inspired this. Now he illuminates it. I don't, isn't that exciting? You almost think God really knew what he was doing. All right, Jim, or Fred, somebody had a hand up. Um, I was just thinking of how, as Christians, we may look down at those who have not taken that step of faith. And yet, if we see the other side of our lives, you know, prior to putting our faith in Jesus Christ, living, really had faith, that uh, it was a huge transformation that continues today. So that person that we might look down at our nose and the next day if they came to us and said, I believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We would elevate them so much. <laughs> and I think there's, I think we need, maybe as we reach out to people who are lost and haven't yet made that decision, we realize in the next minute, hour, day, that we could really embrace them and be so happy for them, whereas the prior day we maybe in some way felt superior or judged them rather than evaluate them as needing Christ. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. In, in the scripture, one of the best examples of that is the Apostle Paul. One day... He is out to kill Christians in Damascus to stop the growth of this heretical movement. The next day, he's in Damascus, blind, hearing people tell him about Jesus, whom he just met in the Damascus Road. What one minute. And uh, it, it, you know, I've seen it in multiple lives over the years of my ministry of how God changes people. And in, in places, individuals, and circumstances, I never, ever, ever thought that person would come to faith. And other people that you, I just, I think they're on the verge of trusting Christ, and that tomorrow, I mean, it's going to happen, and they still haven't trusted Christ. And I mean, I just want to throw them against the wall and punch them out and say, would you please give up? 
Just give up. You know, you what you're where you're at is ridiculous. You know, but you know, they just they will not. There's one guy he just will not trust the Lord. He used to come to my my early morning Bible study, and he he was he's a doctor at the med center. He asked all kind of questions. I met with him at dinner with him and his wife, and so on. He says, "No, just I just can't believe it." You know, it's like, when is it you don't believe? You know, he just won't do it. He will not do it. I think I told you the uh, the story of uh, an, an elderly lady I, I've known for a long time. Her and her husband they went to Israel with me, and he's not a believer. They're getting, we're getting ready going on a plane to head for Tel Aviv. He says, "You do know I'm not a Christian." And I said, "I know, I know. That's that's what you told me." And Harriet, your wife, she she loves the Lord. And, I know, but I'm coming along to police. That's fine. We went through all that. And I'm teaching, and you know the Bible's open. And because you know, I still have beliefs. Okay. And I go, it's years. And one day at the Bible study, Wednesday afternoons, where I go when I'm done with this, Harriet came up to me, her, just tears streaming down her face. 3 a.m. this morning, my husband trusted the Lord. Amen. He came in, he was in a wheelchair, he was very sick. He came into the, to the room crying and said, Harriet, I gave up. That's exactly how I put it. By the next day, he had died. He was very, very sick. So, and I'm saying, I, so you, 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 there are two things I've always believed. Number one, salvation is totally the work of the Lord. I mean, it really is. We, you know, we we pray and so, but it is the Lord. So, it is up. To, it, it it is His. The, the Bible says in John 16 that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's not my business to change people as much as I want to pound them into the kingdom. I just want to hit them over the head with the Bible to get them into the kingdom. That's not the way to do it. But at the same time, secondly, is never give up. Never give up on a person. You know, you never know when they're, and I think there are going to be a number of people when we get to have, we're going to find out the last breath that they took were the breaths of, okay, Lord, I give up. I believe. Everything that's been sought all my life, I just refused. Now I believe. Jim, you and then Joel. It's very illuminating discussion for me um, because it, it, it exposes the way a non-believer would think. I mean, there was a, something that happened in the news this week that really illustrates this. It was commenting on Mike Pence's statement that the Lord speaks to him every day. And there was a TV talk to host who said, that's the definition of mental illness. <laughs> and when we talk here about the maximum to not accept these things because they're foolishness, mm-hmm. I mean, that, when she made that statement, it wasn't, I mean, I thought she's convicted or she's angry mm-hmm. or there's some other motivation, but to her, it was just yeah. utter foolishness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right here. Yeah. She hears the words, she understands the sentence, but it's foolishness. That's stupidity. Yeah. He's got to be in an insane asylum. Uh, that's why <laughs> that she hasn't decamined it. She hasn't received it. She hasn't welcomed it. She hears the words, she understands the claim. And that's another way to put it. Well, Baptist evangelists used to put it this way. It says 18 inches, difference between the mind and the heart. 
Your mind can get it, but if your heart doesn't. Uh, just commenting on or questioning the, the language in verse 16, who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him, so suggesting that no one has, mm-hmm. but we have the mind of Christ. Mm-hmm. So is, is the word mind of, or the phrase mind of, the same in both those it, it, it is. It's news. The Greek word is news. But, and that's, that's real. I should have commented on that, Joe. I, that was a loop I didn't close. What does he mean by that? Does having the mind of Christ mean that we're infinite and omniscient? We know all things. Well, no, it, it doesn't mean that. But I, I think what it means, Joe, is in the context of everything he's been saying about the Holy Spirit, helping us to understand, helping us to welcome we now have, because of the Holy Spirit, we have God's perspective on things. We have that capacity to welcome and understand God's perspective on things. It should, uh, uh, just, let me use a couple examples. I, I don't know you really well. I know you, but I don't know you really well. But God knows you. And God regards you of infinite worth and value to him. So my perspective is to see you the same way he does. My students that I've had over the years, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old students, I mean, you know, they're the most frustrating people to work with in the world. This is the way they are, you know, they're just up and down. And, huh? Oh, yeah, well, they don't know who I'm talking about. But, but I mean, it's just, and so I always, I always, when I was in leadership, I used to tell the faculty, Remember, our job is here. We're to serve these students, our mission statement and all that, but always see the potential in these students. Not where they are now, see the potential. You know, some of you, I've, I've known you now for a number of years, and I, 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 quite a few around this table, I have seen God changing you. I mean that. Just the, 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 what God is doing in your life, the questions you ask me, I see God changing you. And that's the potential. God, the potential. See people the way God's the potential. And or your neighbor who is just a horrible person, like up the street from us. This lady who's just, oh my goodness. But she's the lady that my wife said, you know, I think I'm gonna ask her if I can take her to the store. She's semi-invalid, she's on social security, she's alone, she's on Medicaid, she just it's really and the ordained preacher said that evening, what do you want to do that for? You know, is that a horrible? You know who the ordained preacher is? Don't you? And so, I mean, I just, I said that, and, I, and, and then Peggy said, because she's lost, and she needs to see Jesus, and I'm going to show her Jesus. And I crawled out from under the table, and just, you know, I felt horrible. Here, I'm being convicted by my wife. You know, and she was so spot on. It's just seeing, seeing Judy, that's that lady, the way Jesus sees her. That's the mind of Christ. It's, it's, it's seeing, it's seeing the sin of a person the way God sees it. God sees the sin, but he sees the person. Jim, if we believe the Bible, we believe that person without Christ is headed for hell. It would be like your neighbor's house is on fire and they're sleeping and the kids are upstairs, but you didn't go over to tell. And uh, I think that's... 
Well, that's right. You know, there are a lot of different ways. People, if you had the cure for cancer, and you didn't share it. Why, why? You know, you had the cure for heart or whatever those things are. You have the cure. We, we have the solution. Um, Jim, you don't know me very well except through here. Uh, for years, my wife and I have volunteered at the Methodist Cancer Center, the chemo lab itself. Last Thursday, one of the nurses grabbed me and said, Carla just found out she's got three weeks. Mm. And uh, so I went to her and, you know, Carla, what's going to happen to you when you go? Mm. She said, I don't know. Mm. And long story short, I presented the gospel and she mm. accepted it. Wow. wow. But they didn't call for a chaplain. Yeah. Because the chaplains are politically correct. I understand. No, I understand what you mean by that. Yeah. I understand what you mean. And, uh, but I they. I want to thank you yeah, yeah. for what you've done in my life. Mm, you you haven't seen. Oh, praise uh, the Lord. Carlos praise Lord. Lord. Yeah, praise the Lord. Well, you're you 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 and your wife go in there, and those folks get to see what you're doing. Get to, he's a guy when we have a need, like we're gonna call him, not the chaplain. So you're representing the Lord well. You really are. All right, uh, good questions and comments here. So if I were to ask you um, on a test to explain and illustrate the doctrine of revelation, inspiration, illumination, could you do it? I, obviously, I'm not going to do that. That was rhetorical. But it's, it's th- those three doctrines, and they really are doctrines of our faith, they're really important today. And I honestly, I think I could say this with some confidence, 90 to 95% of the typical evangelical Christians sitting in the typical pew of the typical church could not define what we have just been talking about, could not explain that. And it's just that to me, that's, that's not healthy spiritually. That's not healthy that our people can't talk about those kinds of things. And understand, this is, what, this is how much God loves me and cares about me. He's revealed himself in an inspired book, and his Holy Spirit helps me to understand and welcome and embrace the truth that's there. So why is that? Why do you have Christian Well, the bottom line, quite frankly, Glenn, is uh, uh, in many, many situations, the pastors and staff of the church don't teach this stuff. It is not well taught. And I, that sounds like, uh, in the way I said that, I don't mean it sound that way. It's like, you know, I'm pontificating. I, I'm not doing that. But I have, I mean, I'm 70 years old. I've been in churches all over the United States, all over my life. I preached and ministered, and I have discovered that over and over again. The typical evangelical Christian today is not well taught. And if they're not well taught... It means they're either not going to a very good church or they're not taking the initiative to be well-taught. And sometimes it's a combination of both things. And if you go back, I mean, you go back not too long into history, whether you're in Puritan New England or Reformation Europe, I mean, you, 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 would, be, you would be crazy. Uh, you would go crazy to sit through some of the sermons. I mean... Martin Luther's sermons were an hour and 15 minutes long. Jonathan Edwards' sermon, an hour long. The typical Puritan in New England expected his pastor, expected his pastor to preach at least 90 minutes. 
or you might call another pastor. Would you would you regard that as a criterion that's acceptable? You know, we're uncomfortable when they go beyond twenty minutes. You know, you think we've got to go to Denny's. We don't want to miss our our. Yeah, that's a cynical way to put it, but. So I don't know. It, it, it isn't always that, but um, I believe very strongly that it is important for us in leadership to teach these in-depth things to our people, to un- for them to understand how important the Word of God is in their life. Oprah is not the answer. Dr. Oz is not the answer. The Word of God's got the answer. Could you repeat the three principles? Uh, The three words you mean? Revelation? Is that what you mean? Revelation, inspiration, illumination. They're the three things that we've been talking about. All right. Yeah, John. I just want to be sure I'm clear on this. The Holy Spirit comes from Christ. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But yes. But the man you were talking about... He wasn't accepting anything. He certainly didn't believe in Christ until he finally believed. So it wasn't, <clears throat> you don't have to have a belief in Christ initially. Well, it, 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 well, John, what it, uh, part of what I was saying there with this this uh, this, this man, and I don't remember all the illustration, but Harriet's husband, if you would have asked him before he trusted Christ, do you believe that there was a man named Jesus Christ who lived 2,000 years, who died on a cross, and was resurrected, and he did so for you. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that intellectually. I believe that historically. Do you believe that for you? No, I don't want to. That's the difference. He understood it intellectually. You know, you understand me by that. He understood the message of the gospel. He understood that message, but he didn't accept the message. He said, "I don't need this." That's the difference. I mean, it's like. I, I I don't remember if I've ever used, it, but in my office I have a, a con, an exegetical commentary in the book of Colossians. It's a big, thick thing, but it's written by a German guy. It's a fantastic commentary. I mean, it is really good. He does all kind of great word studies, a lot of historical background, syntactical studies, and so in the material in like Colossians one fifteen through twenty, which is a major passage on the deity of Jesus Christ. It's a major passage on that. And so the guy, he goes, it's, it's just fantastic. I've used it. It's a tremendous commentary. This passage, he concludes at the end of that. This passage conclude, clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is the incarnate God. And in several paragraphs later, the applicational section, this is what he says. But in the modern world, we no longer believe that. We believe that that's what the early church wanted to believe and teach about Jesus. But it's really not objective historical truth. Now, do you see the difference there? This guy intellectually understood what the text was teaching, but he refused to decamite it, to welcome it and embrace it. See the difference? He understood the words, but he didn't welcome it and receive it and embrace it. I mean, that's, that's where so many people are. Today, you know, there used to be a group, they were centered in England, Cambridge, that believed there never was an historical Jesus. It was all made up. Nobody, I don't know of any credible person that teaches that anymore. No, there was an historical figure named Jesus. It's just you can't trust anything in the Bible that's said about him or anything else. We don't know anything about him. Which, I mean, you know, okay. But again, it's just, 
you believe something historical, but you don't believe anything that's said about him in the Gospels. That's what the church wanted to believe about Jesus, but it's not objective historical truth. You can't trust it. So for the last 150 years, a group of scholars have been on the quest for the historical Jesus, trying to figure out who he is. <laughs> well, I think that's easily understood, but you have to you have to allow the Holy Spirit to be your teacher. And that means you have to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, which I don't want to do. All right, are we done? Go ahead. I have a question. The covered here <laughs> seems to be aiming towards the justification piece of receiving. Well, I think that, yes, you that wonderful work of justification, which comes by faith, is the beginning of all this. So, if so you reject that... So how does the illumination piece apply with the fruits of the Spirit, this process that... Say it again, how does the what? So how do you apply um, inspiration and illumination to... Peter, Peter talked about the process of sanctification and the fruits of the Spirit, that, that, that process of the step... Well, I think that um, it would seem to me that the order that we are to follow or to be thinking about is that we come to faith in Christ, we accept the message, we believe it, and we appropriate it to our life by faith, that Jesus died for me, was resurrected for me, taking care of my sin problem and so on. And that's an event in your life, and you begin then that walk, that process, the New Testament words are used, of sanctification. So what's the key? What is the key to that process? It's the Word of God. And therefore, as you do you have to believe that the word that the Bible's inspired to come to faith in Christ? No, you don't have to believe that. Do you have to believe that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you and helps you to welcome and embrace the truth? No, you have to believe that. But once you become a Christian, and you put your faith in Christ, you are justified, you're declared righteous, then the Holy Spirit starts his work in your life, in your mind, in renewing your mind, renewing your heart, renewing your will. And you begin to not only understand, but you begin to welcome what this book is teaching you. And that is the really important key to that process. That's not the only thing, but it's the key to that and then as you start to fellowship with other believers and you're mutually built up and edified, stimulated to love and good deeds, and over time you start to see the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, those kinds of things. So are those separate illuminating events or is it one illumination oh, and it just gets brighter? I think it, yeah, that's, that's a tricky metaphor that you're using there, but that it's probably... It is a process. It's hard to say this, then this, then this. It's just that process. You begin to understand. You begin to welcome, and it just kept getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And even excited occasionally. Yeah, oh, and, and, and you know, rarely, but every now and then you get excited. <laughs> Thank you, Woody. That's right. Let's move to chapter 2. Why did Peter spend, and really, why did I go down lots of bunny trails and spend on this, but why did he bring this up at the end of chapter 2? I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 1. Why, why did he dwell on that? What's the first word of verse 1? But. It's a word of contrast. You have to know this truth. You have to be solid about this truth. Because there are false prophets out there. 
But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So Peter is saying something that has been true throughout all of human history. Where there's truth, there's also error. And false prophets and false teachers are being intentional about their error. And Peter says, you need to be aware of it. In 1 John chapter 2, it's a long chapter, but in the middle of that chapter, John says this, the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. That's a, that's a very powerful phrase to think about for a little bit. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world. And I don't have a board here, but that prefix anti, A-N-T-I. In English, you know, something anti means you're against something. But in the Greek, uh, anti can mean in, in, against, but it can also mean, and actually normally does mean, in place of. So John said, as a warning, the spirit of those who seek to take the place of Christ is in the world. The spirit of deception and duplicity to represent something that they say is from Christ is in the world. And what, what John does then is he works to verse 18, and at the end of time, there will be the Antichrist who will be the ultimate deceiver. Now, I'm maybe telling you a little more than you need to know or even think about, but this is what Peter is saying. There is truth, and there is error. And the one thing we know about the spirit of Antichrist is tries to get as close to truth as it possibly can. Jesus says at the end time, when the spirit of anti when Antichrist really come, he's going to be so deceptive. Four times in the Olivet Discourse, that's Matthew 24, Jesus uses the word, do not be deceived, do not be deceived, do not be deceived, do not be deceived. Because Jesus says, if I would not come back, even some of my followers would be deceived. That is how deceptive Antichrist is going to be. That's hard to conceive that. So Peter is giving them a warning in this, this early AD 61, 62, very early church. There are false prophets and false teachers. And he goes on, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now, ESV, it's a wonderful translation. Secretly, okay, that's deception. That's being duplicitous. That's being subtle, destructive heresies. And he says, even, even denying the master who bought them. Who's the master who bought them? Who's that? Jesus. Even denying Jesus. And this is in the church, he's saying. This is within the church. The United States has been uniquely in history a nation that has protected and guaranteed religious freedom. 
And because of that, the United States also historically has been the nation that has given birth to the largest number of heresies ever devised. Every, every cult, every major heresy was birthed in the United States. And part of that is because of the freedom and, and religious liberty we have, and the United States Constitution says the government's to protect that. Therefore, you have somebody like Joseph Smith coming along and devising a whole new religious system. As long as he doesn't kill anybody, we, can, we have to protect him. And I, I'm using that because it's, they are birthed out, out of Christianity. And Mary Baker, Glover, Patterson, Eddie Smith... I like to use all her names because she was married. She was, but she founded Christian Science. And, I mean, it's the same thing in Boston, Massachusetts, where the mother Christian Science Church is. That was one of the great, great centers of Puritanism. And it births Christian Science, which is merging Eastern mysticism with Christianity. So you go read the Bible, but you also must read Christianity and Science. Are all false prophets... Uh, indeed, from Satan, or could some just be ignorant, not knowing the truth, but believing, believing what they're... That's a, that's a good question, Woody. I, I don't know if I can answer that definitively. Um, certainly, many... Paul makes the claim in 1 Corinthians that error, intentional error, is always sourced in Satan. But there is such a thing as ignorant error. I think it's kind of, if I put words in your mouth, I don't mean to do that, but I think that's kind of what you're saying. But even ignorant error, Satan can use and exploit that. But you're right. Some of it is just sometimes out of ignorance. Not well taught, not well versed, and will say things that are wrong, but they don't really realize and understand what they're saying is wrong. Yeah, but they really believe it. They really believe it. And that's where then church leaders and so on just need to come along and say, look, you know, there's really there's a better way to say that. There's a better way to articulate this. Let me help you. What you're saying, I love your passion. I love your zeal. In Romans 10, Paul speaks, there are many people who have zeal but don't have knowledge. And there's a lot of people who have great zeal, but you don't have knowledge. And uh, you've got to, those two have to come together. Great time, this um, 32 seconds. So if a person is, uh, comes to Christ in faith, and still these heresies are coming at him, the purpose of that is, uh, is to neutralize, would you say, Jim, or because that salvation cannot be taken from that person, if in fact they were originally Right. It's very much so. Well, I think it's. I'm not sure that's all that's happening in Second Peter two here. I think it's much deeper than that. But that can be, and that's a little bit what Woody was saying about the ignorant, the person speaking out of ignorance and saying something that's absolutely tr- untrue, absolutely false. And that's where that we need to correct that. We need to help them see that error. That doesn't affect their salvation or their security at all. We really got to quit here. So I'm going to pray, and then um, thank you. as a great, great discussion. Thank you for your good interaction. I really appreciate that. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the God of grace that you are. Your grace is so amazing. Um, you send the Lord Jesus to pay the price for our sin, resurrect him in glory and power, showing you accepted that. You've revealed yourself in your creation, in the conscience, which is a part of each one of us, in your moral law and the word of God and in Jesus. And you verbally 
reveal yourself in an inspired book called the Bible. And then in the Holy Spirit who takes up residence when we put our faith in Christ, he illuminates the scripture. Not only helps us understand it, but helps us to welcome it and to embrace it. And I think Jim Beck's comment was so appropriate. We should never be surprised how unbelievers are shocked about some of the things that the Bible claims, some of the things Christians even say, because they, are, they don't have any way to understand or welcome or embrace. And like he said about uh, the vice president saying that he talks to the Lord and all of that, that's the language of an insane person. That shouldn't surprise us. They have no understanding at all no welcoming of the truth of, of, of Christianity. And we pray for that reporter. I don't know who it is, but I pray that, Lord, you would open her heart. The Bible says that the Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Would you do that in that lady's heart? So that she would see who the real, true Jesus is and not be flabbergasted at what some people say. And that's why it's so important that we do the best we can in dependence on you to represent you well. Because sometimes we're the only Bible people see. So help us to do that to your glory. Dismiss us now with your blessing. Take care of us. And may we represent you well in our thought and deed in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.